This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Well, Howard, I appreciate and this is that, the but it is, um, it's 5.02, and I am late for the Cameron Journal News Hour, and the intro only lasts for 10 more seconds. So I gotta go. Talk soon. Bye-bye. for being a little late. I was having a little bit of camera technical difficulty um, in terms of uh, I was, I've so I've got a new camera. <clears throat> and it's really cool. Um, the only difficulty is that it sometimes uh, looks a little weird. And I'm still, I'm still refining the process. I'm still trying to get it right and get it centered and all this type of thing. And it's mounted on the top of my monitor, which is good placement usually. Um, but it's pretty obvious to me that I still need to screw with it a little bit more because it's not, um, it's not perfected. So, um, so pardon my delay, um, but it does look much better and I've got new lighting. So I I'm brighter and more present and it's less dark and, and I'm, I'm, we're still working stuff out. There was also a software update, um, with the camera software, it's AI powered, um, which is supposed to be good. And, um, and so I was, um, when I first got on, it had me in a tint of green, looked very bad. So I had to recalibrate, and it's a whole thing. I won't bore you with the, the this and that. But, <clears throat> so, welcome back. We were off last week from Memorial Day weekend. I hope you guys had a great start, unofficial start to summer. Um, I hope you guys went out and did something fun and interesting. Um, I took some time and got some very much needed rest and break. I've been in a little bit... A burnout. Longtime listeners will know that I um, I just finished my MFA, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing, in February, and I'm, I'm unfortunately during graduation I got COVID for the second time. And this time, the first time I had COVID, it was asymptomatic. It was like, oh, you had COVID, and I'm like, oh, cool. And then this time it was like, no, sickness, sickness, bad, 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 bad. I got all the symptoms. I was absolutely miserable. Um, and so uh, as a result, um, I, I've had, it was a lot, and also um, <laughs> living in downtown Seattle, uh, my car got broken into twice in one month. So that was a lot of drama to deal with. Um, and um, and so it, it's been, there's been a lot going on and I started doing the news hour again and I started doing all of these things. 
and so, <clears throat> um, so there was there was a lot a lot going on, a lot of moving parts, um, a lot of things that were that were happening. I still feel like I'm off centered. That's kind of better. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and so I've just been suffering from a lot of burnout. And, and been super tired. So I took Memorial Day weekend off and I did, I rested and relaxed and saw some friends and felt better about life and all this type of thing. So I hope you guys took some time to recharge. Um, for those of us with military and our family, Memorial Day is always a super important holiday. Um, and so we're, we're mindful of that during that time um, as well. So... It has been a busy news day, but also week, um, especially because uh, we had a bunch of people announce they're running for president today, including, you'll never guess who, our friend from Indiana, Mike Pence, final paperwork um, to announce that he was running for president today, um, setting up a showdown between him and Trump. I'm going to watch just to see what happens with those two. That's get me a Republican primary debate scheduled right away. Because I'm there. I'm all about it. Um, and, uh, and so that's, um, so that's, that's fun. Uh, and, and so that we, and also we had, uh, so Nikki Haley's still in. Mike Pence is in. Chris Sununu, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, announced he for sure was not running, and we're anticipating an announcement from Chris Christie this week as well. So the the field is hotting up for twenty twenty four, and uh, and that is um, you know kind of a fun a fun time and situation. Like I said, I'm excited to see the Mike Pence Trump showdown. That's gonna be great. I, I'm sorry, that's gonna be great. Like it's like the you know it's like well how much you know. How much did you, you know, did you disagree with the last administration? You know, the one that you were a part of. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult, see, that's got even worse. I'm going to have to screw with this later. Anyway. Um, that's going to be a fun, a fun conversation. Um, the other big thing that happened right before the deadline, which was today, um, was the debt ceiling deal. So last Friday, Republicans and the White House came together on a debt ceiling deal. It was passed um, through the House and the Senate, and President Biden signed it over the weekend. Which leads into our first story, um, which is enter entertaining. Um, where is it here? Oh, yes. Uh, we have banks that need more capital. We'll get back to that in a minute. Um... And uh, the SEC is going after Binance, which is is fun. We're gonna get to we're gonna get to that. Ah, oh, yes, here we are. The Biden debt deal is going to unleash a tsunami of U.S. debt sales. So this is from Bloomberg. It says the Treasury is expected to sell one trillion dollars or more of new debt. The department ran down cash to keep making federal payments. Um, President Joe Biden's signature of legislation suspending the federal debt ceiling has given the Treasury Department the green light to resume new debt issuance after months of disruption. By the way, the debt ceiling is suspended till 2025 after the presidential election. So now we're not going to have any more debt ceiling drama until after the next presidential election. 
So that's good. Um, and hopefully not a lot of budget drama either. But anyway, here we go. Ever since mid-January, when it hit the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, the Treasury has been using special accounting measures to maintain payments on all federal obligations. There were just $33 billion of those left available as of May 31st. It's also been running down its cash balance, which dropped below $23 billion on June 1st, a level seen by experts as dangerously low, given the volatility in day-to-day -day federal revenues and payments. The bill Biden signed Saturday suspended the debt limit until January 1st, 2025, allowing the Treasury to rebuild its cash to more normal levels. Early last month, the department had penciled in a $550 billion cash balance level for mid-June. A widening fiscal deficit also puts pressure on the Treasury to step up borrowing. Uh, the debt auctions are set to swell, they say. The replenishing process, which could involve an amount well in excess of $1 trillion in new securities, could have unwanted consequences by draining liquidity from the banking sector, raising short-term funding rates, and tightening the screws on an economy that many economists see headed for a recession. Bank of America has estimated that the issuance wave could have the same economic impact as a quarter-point interest rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Auction announcements will offer investors guidance on how quickly the Treasury will go about stepping up issuance. On Thursday, the department said it planned to bolster the size of upcoming three-month and six-month bill offerings by $2 billion apiece coming in the coming week. It has, always been it has already been ramping up its issuance of four-month debt, its newest bill benchmark. Four- and eight-week auctions, meanwhile, have room to grow after being reduced to $35 billion each for each weekly issuance cycle. Treasury started the week <clears throat> on the back foot with the benchmark 10-year yields climbing four basis points to 3.73% in Asia trading. So the I find it interesting no matter what you do and no matter how what happens, um, there's always cause and effect, right? So um, <clears throat> you have this kind of sad situation where... Um, we we delayed dealing with this problem for so long that now we're going to harm we were trying to avoid harming the economy but we're going to harm the economy anyway because um we didn't issue debt for so long and now there's going to be a huge wave of it and now you know kind of here we are so um so that i think is sad but entertaining it, it will probably be fine. It is going to drain on a lot, of, a lot of liquidity. It is, I don't think it's going to cause a recession, but it will probably be certainly a part of it because government's going to be sucking money out of the banking system. Um, however, the nice thing about that from an inflation perspective is less money floating around in the economy will help tamp down inflation. So while it may not necessarily be good for the economy, it will certainly help with, in, with inflation. Speaking while we're on the banking sector. Um, this story was rather interesting today. Um, then we'll get on to more fun news. We have to talk about Saudi oil here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> it says here, you, large U.S. banks may have to boost their capital by an average of 20%, and a broader swath of lenders would face strict requirements for setting aside money under a draft plan from U.S. regulators to bolster the financial system. Specific increases will depend on the lender's business model, and banks with at least $100 billion in assets may have to adhere to the new requirements, according to people familiar with the proposals. That's far lower than the existing $250 billion threshold, where many of the toughest rules kick in, which means dozens of regional U.S. banks might have to meet the new standard. 
the actual lump in capital, the actual bump in capital requirements, which may be proposed this month, will vary based on the range of banks that will be affected by the changes to key capital rules. Said the people, who has not to be identified before the plans are made public. The long-awaited changes are part of an international overhaul of capital rules that started more than a decade ago in response to the financial crisis of 2008. The issue became more stark this year with the collapse of several banks in the U.S. As we know, um, we had SVB go under. We've talked about that. First Republic went under. Well, got sold quickly to somebody else. Um, all this type of thing. So this is more more banking regulation. I swear, most of the time it feels like we're living in the 1930s. The only thing we're missing is the Dust Bowl and a bumper crop of wheat. Um, it says here, higher capital requirements are unwarranted, said Kevin Cromer, Chief Executive Officer of the Financial Services Forum, an advocacy group whose members are the CEOs of the eight largest financial institutions headquartered in the U.S. Additional requirements would mainly serve to burden businesses and borrowers, hampering the economy at the wrong time. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company Chief Financial Officer Jeremy Barnum said late, late last month that the firm was expecting the proposals on implementing new standards any day now and anticipated increased capital requirements for trading businesses and so-called operational risk. He said that while the firm would push back on calls for more capital, it was preparing for its requirements to rise. The changes are part of an international regulatory effort known as Basel III. Citigroup Chief Executive Officer Jane Frazier said last week that her bank was holding off on anything beyond modest buybacks until it added more clarity on the Basel changes and the Federal Reserve's separate holistic review of capital requirements. It's the lever that regulators think they want to impose a bit more conservatism in the industry. Ken Achenbach, a partner at law firm Brian Cade, Leighton & Paisner, who focuses on bank regulation and corporate risk. A 20% hike would be a very, very significant increase. The Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency declined to comment. The Wall Street Journal reported the uh, average expected impact from the proposals. Um, obviously, that is, you know, the whole point of that is to slow down, um, not to slow down the economy so much, but it's to help prevent future bank failures. Here, because here's the unfortunate reality. The FDIC got really drawn down by having three big regional banks um, fail at once. <clears throat> and rather insuring those deposits for just a quarter million dollars, they ended up insuring all of the deposits. In fact, I have a couple of accounts that are now insured up to five million, which is fun. Um, and, uh, and so that has put a lot of pressure on, you know, the, the government mechanisms that keep the economy stable. Hence why new capital requirements all this type of thing. It's it's the idea, the hope, is to make the system more stable. That's the hope. Speaking of system stability, we also have a good story here. Uh, Morgan Stanley expects a shock 16% U.S. profit drop to kill rally. Strategists see S&P 500 ending year 9% lower than Friday close, with greater upside in Asian and Asian equities. It says here, Morgan Stanley strategists anticipate a sudden pullback in corporate earnings will slam the brakes on a U.S. equity rally. That's fancy talk for stock market. A call at odds with Wall Street estimates. Instead, they're bullish on equities in Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea and recommend an overweight position in developed market government bonds, including long-dated treasuries and the dollar. Earnings per share for the S&P 500 are set to drop 16% this year, according to Morgan Stanley strategists, led by Andrew Sheets. That's one of the most bearish predictions among those tracked by Bloomberg, and contrasts with the bullish forecast from the likes of Goldman Sachs, which anticipates mild growth. We think that the downside risk to U.S. earnings is now, Morgan Stanley analysts wrote in a note published Sunday, while the deteriorating liquidity backdrop is likely to put downward pressure on equity valuations over the next three months. 
I like Goldman. I follow Goldman closely. I think they're all wet. I think Morgan Stanley's onto something. Here's and here's why I bring this up. Then we're gonna get to Binance because that's <laughs> that's gonna be fun. <clears throat> um, because that scandal's been brewing for a while. Um, I the, I think the economy is in real in, in real in real trouble. Um, just simply because of inflation. You have several stories. Last week a story came out. People are borrowing from their retirement funds to pay for day-to-day -day expenses. Um, another story came out that said for the first time in 40 years, credit card balances in the first quarter of the year did not fall, which means people didn't pay off their debts. They just paid the minimum and kept going. People just don't have the money. It's getting eaten up in gas. It's getting eaten up in food. It's getting eaten up in all of these things. And so, uh, and so that, you know, when the consumer is squeezed, they're not, there's not as much discretionary spending. Companies aren't making as much money because people aren't buying stuff. It's a reciprocal cycle. So, um, it's, it's very, uh, it's not surprising. So I think, I think bullish expectations are a bit misplaced. Do I think it's necessarily going to be as bad as Morgan Stanley says? Probably not. Um, will it be as good as Goldman says? I don't think so. It'll probably be somewhere in the thing where we might, we might eke out some modest growth, but it's not going to be what it has been, especially with the Federal Reserve tightening going on. And we now have this treasury thing that we just talked about with all this money kind of leaving the economy, which should hopefully tamp inflation down, but is, you know, could cause a liquidity crisis sort of thing. Um, these are all different factors, <clears throat> factors at play. Now, speaking of other economic scandals, turning our attention to crypto, um, before I get into the story from the New York Times, in the fallout of Sam Bankman-Fried and that whole crazy crypto insanity, a lot of the major crypto companies, especially the exchanges, have come under a lot of scrutiny for... Um, for how they are doing business and if they have actual capital on hand and all and all this type of thing, um, and how deposits are being handled and how and how secure people's money really is. And when you get into money in the billions of dollars and all this type of thing, then government regulation comes into play. The government has been very slow to regulate crypto, and we're now finally seeing the wheels of government begin to catch up to some of the dark behavior that's been going on in the crypto markets for a while. So, to that, this story from the New York Times, the SEC accuses Binance of mishandling funds and lying to regulators. The SEC said the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange mixed billions of dollars in, in customer funds and secretly sent them into a separate company controlled by Binance's founder, Chengping Zhao. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission on Monday accused Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, of mishandling customer funds and lying to American regulators and investors about its operations in a sweeping case that has the potential to remake the landscape of power and wealth within crypto. The SEC's lawsuit was the second time this year that federal regulators have accused Binance of evading laws designed to protect investors in the United States. Regulators have long seen the exchange, which says it does $65 billion in average daily trading volume, as a major target in their quest to bring to heel a crypto industry that has been built around explicitly anti-government ethos. In the 163-page complaint, the SEC said Binance had mixed billions of dollars in customer funds and secretly sent them to a separate company, Merit Peak Limited, which is controlled by Binance's founder, Cheng Ping Zhao. 
The complaint also said Binance had misled investors about the adequacy of its systems to detect and control manipulative trading and its efforts to restrict U.S. users from trading on its international platform. U.S.-based customers were supposed to have access only to an ostensibly separate company formed specifically to operate within the United States called Binance U.S. Binance and Mr. Zhao, quote, enriched themselves by billions of U.S. dollars while placing investors' assets at significant risk. In a blog post on Monday, Binance said its leaders had been trying to negotiate a settlement with regulators and were disappointed and disheartened by the SEC's decision to bring a case. The company said the case was a, quote, misguided and conscious refusal to provide much-needed clarity and guidance to the digital asset industry, and added that it would fight back vigorously. Binance also charged that the SEC had rushed to court to file the lawsuit, noting last week regulators had served, quote, a new set of 26 document requests to the company. The charges were the latest actions by U.S. regulators and prosecutors to rein in the wild west of crypto trading and force major players in the space to come into compliance with U.S. laws. Sam Bankman freed the founder of FTX, which had been a big crypto trading rival of Binance, who filed for bankruptcy in November, faces an October trial for fraud and other charges. In recent months, the SEC has also levied fines and other penalties against crypto lending firms. <clears throat> uh, knew this was coming. <clears throat> I knew that uh, that thing that you know things were going when it comes to um, crypto that there was going to be um, innovation. There was going to be a pullback. Um, there was going to be. Uh, some regulation um it's one of the reasons i kind of got out of the crypto space um because i didn't know what the government regulatory environment was going to be so um i'm not surprised this is happening at all and the the uh one of the big problems with crypto and these exchanges is it's all happening behind the scenes there's no transparency there's a lot of dark money coming and going we don't know where the money comes from or where it goes as witnessed by the story and so it makes it very difficult to have trust in a system who, because it's on the blockchain, is supposed to be trustworthy, is supposed to um, not need third-party verification. And yet, we keep finding instances like FTX and Binance and all these companies who are doing dark and shady things, and it doesn't matter that it's on the blockchain. It doesn't matter we can see all the transactions. People are dishonest, and that's why having a third-party verification can be important. And this is another example of that, a prime example of it, I would say. So, enough about money, enough about the economy. We're going to move on to some other subjects right now, one of whom has to do with elections, which we're going to get to that and Mike Pence here in a minute. But right now, we're going to talk about oil, and we have two stories to do with our friend oil. One is... Trudeau in Canada betting $9 billion on a plan to clean up the world's dirtiest oil. That's story number one. And story number two is Saudi Arabia reducing um, <clears throat> oil production to prop up oil prices. So let's start in Canada. We'll go to Saudi Arabia. It says here, Canada's oil sands industry says carbon capture can help it cut planet warming emissions. But can taxpayer cash be better spent? <clears throat> says here, Canada is seeking billions of dollars of public money on an oil industry <clears throat> plan to transform one of the world's dirtiest crudes into one of the cleanest. But it's relying on a technology that, with a checkered track record to prolong the life of a business critics say belongs in the history books. 
The tar that infuses the sands in Canada's remote northwest is so sticky, the region's indigenous people traditionally used it to waterproof their canoes. It wasn't much use for anything else until the 1960s, when the oil company that became Suncor found a way to refine the bitumen into crude oil that could be sold in the global market. Today, Canada is the world's fourth largest oil producer, but the amount of energy it takes to extract and process oil sands barrels makes many of the region's grades among the most polluting crudes of all. A grade called Canadian Cold Lake, for example, released 81.87 kilograms of planet-warming carbon dioxide for every barrel produced in July 2021, four times the emissions for a barrel from Saudi Arabia's Gawar field. Under pressure to neutralize carbon emissions by mid-century while also supporting the domestic oil industry, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has so far pledged Canadian dollars, 12.4 billion, or 9.1 billion American dollars, in tax credits for building carbon capture systems. That includes a massive project that aims to suck up an annual 10 million metric tons of carbon emissions produced by the massive equipment at oil sand sites by 2030. By 2050, after billions more in investment, the system is expected to capture as much as 40 million metric tons of carbon annually, enough to zero out the emissions of Sweden and salvage an industry that accounts for 7% of Canada's economy and more than a fifth of goods exports. That's if it works. Though carbon capture and storage technologies have been around for decades, efforts to scale them up have faced problems ranging from geological limitations to debilitating technical faults to prohibitive costs, leaving a trail of expensive, underperforming, and sometimes failed projects in their wake. <clears throat> that makes this a very high-risk strategy for liberal Trudeau, who is unlikely to reap much political gain in conservative Alberta, the capital of the oil sands industry, if the plan succeeds, but will face criticism if it fails to improve Canada's subpar climate record. They've had decades to get it right, and yet it struggled. Bruce Robertson, a Sydney-based analyst at the Institute for Energy, Economics, and Financial Analysis, an environmental research group, said by telephone, we've only got a limited amount of money, and there are probably better ways to spend it. And he goes on and talks about the issues with oil sands and all this type of thing and how to reduce emissions in a, in a meaningful, um, in a, in a meaningful full way and whether the carbon capture technology is going to meaningfully work or, or not, <clears throat> which is obviously <clears throat> whoever, if anyone, um, can get it right, um, it will be significant because it will it will create a situation where uh, we don't have to be reactive to climate. We can be proactive with climate and and begin you know removing carbon from the atmosphere in a meaningful way. Um, but the, the the technology exists to do it. Whether it can scale up and do it in a big enough way to make any sort of impact. <clears throat> is quite another question, and we're just not there yet, I don't think. Um, and that is, uh, and that's a difficult, that's a difficulty. Um, but I think it's interesting that Canada is, is, is trying that. Um, they're also, as I was reading this morning as well, um, al alongside uh, Mr. Trudeau's uh, new carbon capture announcement, Suncor announced that they were doing layoffs this morning as well. So um, there's some shaky, shaky things happening in the Canadian oil sector. Um, speaking of oil, though, we're now going to travel to the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is screwing with oil prices again. Here it is. For years, Saudi Arabia has vowed to intervene in the oil market only in concert with OPEC bigwigs, and rarely, if ever, alone. 
Call it the oil version of All for One, One for All. On Sunday, Riyadh threw away its own rulebook, announcing a unilateral output cut that would push the country's production down to levels rarely seen in the last decade. The market reaction? Meh. Oil rose a lackluster 2% nearly trading on Monday, with Brent still below $80 a barrel. Few Saudi officials understand better than Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman the never-alone mantra. The current Saudi oil minister attended his first meeting of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries in 1987. It was a teaching moment for the young royal. For several years, Riyadh had cut oil production and unilaterally to support prices, ceding market share to rivals inside and outside OPEC. At one point in late 1985, with output barely covering domestic consumption, the kingdom threw in the towel and sharply boosted output, triggering a price collapse. So why has Prince Abdulaziz, a critic of previous Saudi ministers factory alone, taken the solo route? On Sunday, Riyadh announced it will reduce output by 10% in July, coming in on top of cuts in May and June, which only included a handful of OPEC nations rather than the whole group. It would reduce Saudi output to 9 million barrels a day, excluding a period during the COVID-19 pandemic when demand plunged, Saudi oil output would drop to a level unseen in more than a decade. Riyadh regularly pumped more than 9 million barrels a day in 2003, and again from 2005 to 2008. The cut is meant to only be for July, but the Saudis indicated it may be extended if needed. Oil traders reckon that's likely. Prince Abdulaziz said the cut highlighted how the kingdom, quote, will do whatever is necessary to bring stability to this market. For stability, read higher oil prices. <clears throat> it's no secret that Saudi Arabia likes oil to be about $9,200. It says here, uh, taking a sympathetic view, the cut dubbed the Saudi lollipop by Prince Abdulaziz is bullish, perhaps marking the first step to drive oil prices back to the $90 to $100 range the Saudis prefer. Unlike in the 80s, the Saudis don't face massive competition. Back then, oil production was gushing everywhere. Now, even the U.S. shale industry is somewhat on the back foot, and Russia isn't, a, isn't in a position to increase production either. But there's a far less rosy view. The skeptical perspective says that, o that the OPEC weekend didn't go Saudi Arabia's way, and Prince Abdulaziz was effectively forced into a solo cut. Since Riyadh roped Russia into the cartel in 2016, it meant that both countries would cut in unison. Over the weekend, no deeper output reductions were pledged by Moscow, which instead simply extended the length of curbs previously announced. Moreover, many inside OPEC were skeptical, to put it mildly, that the Russians were even delivering on those supply promises. And with the Air United Arab Emirates winning an increase in its quota for 2024, that nation will soon be adding oil into the market, irrespective of what the Saudis do. The dichotomy of Saudi Arabia cutting output to a 10-year low while its neighbor prepares to open the taps is telling. Put together, both measures indicate that Moscow and Abu Dhabi are more content with, oil, with lower oil prices than Riyadh is. Both are vocal enough to get their way, too. If that's true, Saudi Arabia could be forced to shoulder more of the weight of managing the oil market alone if it wants to keep prices elevated. Much as it had to do in the 1980s. <clears throat> so, big news in the oil market. Canada's trying to suck carbon out of the air to save their oil industry. Saudi Arabia is trying to get prices back up, even though Abu Dhabi and the Russians are not interested. And uh, it's what what does that what does all this mean for us? Um, it means you're probably gonna have nominal higher gas prices this summer. Um, it's uh, now here's the nice thing though, when you have slightly higher gas prices or slightly higher oil prices, um, a lot of the shale oil development in this country becomes profitable again. And now that those wells are drilled, they can be brought back online. I think in thirty days it takes about a month. So there might be a situation where if oil gets back up to $900, you might see an increase in domestic production, which would be good. Um, turning to election news, um, 
I found this this morning from the from the New York Times. It was a paper about what happened in 2022 and what happened in terms of the youth vote. <clears throat> and I thought this was this was really interesting because there were a couple um, a couple things that I've been waiting on electorally that haven't happened yet that have finally happened. So some of the major findings that I thought were interesting were uh, the 2022 election defied conventional wisdom and historical trends. In a typical midterm election year with one party controlled the presidency, House, and Senate, the incumbent party would expect major losses. Instead, Democrats re-elected every incumbent senator and expanded their Senate majority by a seat, won the overwhelming majority of heavily contested gubernatorial elections, and gained control of four state legislative chambers, and only narrowly lost the U.S. House. Democrats won in the majority of heavily contested races, with electorates in those contests looking more like the 2020 2018 electorates than in a typical midterm. And here's the important one, and I was wondering when this was going to happen. Gen Z and millennial voters had exceptional levels of turnout, with young voters in heavily contested states exceeding their 2018 turnout by 6% among those who are eligible in both elections. Further, 65% of voters between the ages of 18 and 29 supported Democrats, cementing their role as a key part of a winning coalition for the party. While young voters were historically evenly split between the parties, they're increasingly voting Democrat. Many young voters who showed up in 2018 and 2020 to elect Democrats continue to do so in 2022. Extreme MAGA Republicans underperformed. Um, it says here that uh, uh, election deniers did <clears throat> one to four points worse than other Republicans contributing to their losses in important close races. Of course, election denial is one of the extreme positions associated with MAGA Republicans. Women voters pushed Democrats over the top in heavily contested races where abortion rights were often the top issue. <clears throat> Democrats largely retained their winning 2020 coalition in heavily contested races, with some exceptions. It says here that uh, um, one notable shift includes black voters. While they continued to play an outsized role in contributing to Democratic victories, black turnout largely fell in contested races. Meanwhile, Democrat support among black voters rose in southern states with heavily contested elections, but fell less in less contested states. I thought this was interesting mostly because I was... I had always kind of wondered, um, and then they go into all the numbers and charts and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but I, I'd always wondered, you know, and I, I know as I've been writing America's Lost Generation, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is how the millennial vote is kind of the electoral dog that's never bit. Um, and if it ever did, American politics would change dramatically. And it appears now that thanks to Trump and everything else and <clears throat> I think a lot of encouragement from Gen Z and all this type of thing millennials are finally going to the polls they're finally starting to vote they're finally starting to vote in numbers and that means the millennial view, the millennial agenda is finally going to begin to push the boomer agenda off to the side and that means there's going to be opportunity to you know finally get some things moving and changing in this country and get some actionable actionable progress going while we're on the subject of elections as i mentioned in the in the beginning uh mike pence filed to run for president today he's going to formally announce his candidacy wednesday in iowa um the campaign is to target the state's large number of evangelical voters it says here former vice president mike pence filed paperwork to run for president monday setting up a clash with former running mate donald trump in an increasingly crowded battle for the future of the republican party pence 63 
young by presidential candidate standards these days, will formally announce his candidacy Wednesday in Iowa, according to people familiar with his plans. The former vice president and Indiana governor has been laying the groundwork for a White House bid for more than a year, visiting early voting states, giving policy speeches, and promoting an autobiography. But he has so far broken out of the lower tier of the 2024 GOP White House, aspires to less than 4% support in the real clear politics average of polls. Pence is offering himself as the only traditional conservative in the field who can win the GOP nomination and defeat President Joe Biden, while governing with more civility than Trump. He is touting the popular policies of the Trump-Pence administration while breaking from his former boss on election denialism and other issues. Pence is targeting the Hawkeye state with, his first in, with its first-in-the-nation GOP caucuses because of the large number of evangelical voters who participate in his appeal to Iowans as a fellow Midwesterner. People know Mike Pence, they just don't know him well, Republican strategist Scott Reed, a co-chairman of the, of the Super PAC supporting Pence, told reporters last month. His campaign is going to reintroduce Mike Pence to the country as his own man, not as vice president, but as a true economic, social, and national security conservative. A Reagan conservative. Trump supporters booed Pence in his home state of Indiana in April when he introduced at a meeting of the National Rifle Association, though he did get a standing ovation from some of the NRA members after his speech. Sarah Longwell, who conducts focus groups with Republican voters and publishes the anti-Trump website The Bulwark, said there is zero appetite among GOP voters for Pence because many think he betrayed Trump or think he's weak. There are some people who are sort of kind of like about him like, oh, he seems like a nice guy, he'd make a great neighbor, but he's never going to be president. I don't know why he's still in politics, Longwell said. The former vice president joins a growing GOP field that will be getting larger this week. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to announce his candidacy at a town hall event in New Hampshire, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum has a major announcement on Wednesday in Fargo. On the same day Pence filed his paperwork, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who was weighing a bid, said he is not running for president. Besides Trump, the announced major GOP candidates so far include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Ohio businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, and conservative radio host Larry Elder. <clears throat> like I said, the race is hotting up. Things are things are happening. Um, there is on the on the Democrat side, although no one's really talking about it because it, it's in, considered in poor taste to primary an incumbent um, at the presidential level. Um, there are a couple Democrats who've thrown their hat in the ring against Joe Biden that are worth talking about. Uh, Marianne Williamson, who you'll remember from 2020, she's back. <laughs> um, she's got quite a social media presence going. Um, she's got a lot going on. I've seen her stuff on TikTok organically, like I don't follow her. Um, and I've seen other stuff of hers on Twitter and all this type of thing. The other one that's very interesting, and he actually appeared with Jordan Peterson today um june 5th um is uh robert f kennedy jr um rfk he has been doing the rounds he's been talking about a lot of stuff um he's an anti-vaxxer um he's uh really kind of uh i would say to the right of most of the party right now um and and he's you know and it's kind of emblematic, like, he's been on Fox News, he's with Jordan Peterson, all this type of thing. Um, do I think the DNC is going to allow a real primary against Joe Biden? Probably not. Um, but it is interesting that he has, uh, he has himself out there. And what I, what I find interesting about RFK is how many people are really responsive to him. Um, 
in terms of like people being like, oh yeah, like RFK Jr. He says a lot of great stuff. Like I, you know, so I think it's interesting that even though he's having a hard time getting in like mainstream media and all this type of thing, when people hear what he has to say, they're into it, which I think is interesting. Um, for our final story, we're gonna kind of leave all of that behind oil and the presidency and all this type of thing, and we're gonna talk about uh, Miami for a moment um, and crime. It says here, the super rich escaping to Miami are insulated from the realities of crime. Crime rates in Miami are at a four-decade low, but rich neighborhoods are leaving the rest behind. <clears throat> when it comes to the crime in Miami, it pays to be rich. Where doesn't it pay to be rich? Take Coconut Grove, the wealthy enclave along the shores of Biscayne Bay that LeBron James, Madonna, and Sylvester Stallone have called home. Police handled reports of just a little over two dozen crimes in the square mile around billionaire Ken Griffin's $107 million waterfront estate there in the last half of 2022. Mostly offenses like car and home break-ins. It's not the only place where crime barely registers in Miami. There's Coral Gables, Fisher Island, Star Island, Palm-lined oases that have recently drawn wealthy transplants from Chicago, New York, and San Francisco who extol its safety. I love the commitment they have to the streets being safe, Griffin, who grew up in Florida, said recently in Palm Beach in a Bloomberg interview. It's hard to imagine that in Chicago. By Griffin's account, Chicago had grown so unlivable that he moved to the headquarters of his Citadel financial empire to Miami late last year. There's still serious crime in the sprawling city, so much so that Griffin has given millions to help improve policing. But in his narrative, Miami, the place whose violent history inspired Al Pacino's Scarface and the TV series Miami Vice, is a rarity, a big American city that has little crime. That optimism obscures a sometimes brutal reality. While crime rates are roughly to four-decade low in Miami, the drop has clearly favored rich over poor, an analysis of calls to police shows. The number of crimes reported in the square-mile slice of Coconut Grove that includes Griffin's Mansion dropped by 35% to 29 in the last half of 2022, compared to the same period of 2020. In a smaller, less populated part of Model City, one of the city's poorest neighborhoods, there were almost 200 reported crimes, down just 11% from 2020. It's easy for billionaires to rave about low crime, but anyone who lives in Miami knows that's not necessarily true, said Billy Corbin, who directed the Netflix documentary series Cocaine Cowboys, The Kings of Miami, which explores the rise of the city's narcotics kingpins in the 1980s. Ultra-rich transplants can also count on resources. Average citizens can't. Real estate investor Barry Stern Licht recently went on CNBC to rave about how he got slow to respond Miami police to help a friend involved in a car crash. Stern Licht had another friend text the mayor. The mayor was on it in five minutes and got the police, he said. To Corbin, incidents like that underscore Miami's economic disparity, which rivals Colombia and Angola, according to the World Bank. We have one of the poorest metro areas in the country, and we have concierge mayors for billionaires. That's what we get, Corbin said. Um, and the article goes on, and it talks about Ron DeSantis and, and all this type of thing, and, and the new resources for policing in Miami, but I, I thought it was kind of a, a story that's so indicative of our time that the wealthy can pick a location, move there, splash some money around, and get, you know, concierge police services and all this type of thing to the detriment of all the other residents and all this type of thing. And so, um, it, it's just, we are truly living in a gilded age. We really are. It's sad. <laughs> we are, yeah, it's quite, it's quite depressing. It's quite depressing. But anyway, that's the news hour for today, June 5th, 2023. Thank you all so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I appreciate you. And thank you so much for sticking with me. And thank you for letting me have the week off last week. I appreciate it. And um, catch me online. 
uh, at CameronJournal.com. We don't have a lot of content on the website this week because I'm working on it, but there's tons of stuff to read. Um, there's a great video about Russian propaganda that's worth watching. Um, and there was a new interview today um, with a doctor writing about um, people who do crazy, risky things. Alexandra Karazi. So I'm going to go post that. Um, but that's out on podcast platforms. It's out here on YouTube. So just because I haven't had time to write a bunch of stuff doesn't mean there's still not stuff to engage with. So thank you all for watching. I'll catch you all next week. And thanks for watching. Bye-bye now. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>